0: Hello everyone. Welcome to a, another episode of Marketing Ops Confessions. Today we have Vish. She is a Marketing Operations Manager at Databricks. Hey Vish, how are you today? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Excited to talk with you today. I know i um, We've had a few prep calls, and selfishly, I'm really excited to, to pick your brain about your experience and some of the, the project management side of things. But uh, yeah, before we jump in, if you're regular here, you know that you can participate in the chat. We love um, comments uh, and participation during the conversation. If you have questions, you can ask in the question area, and we'll make sure to uh incorporate in our conversation uh, throughout today. So um, please introduce yourself in the chat. We'd love to know who's joining us today. All right, Vish. So we always start out with a bit of an overview of how you got into marketing ops. And I think the way you got in is really interesting because we always hear people fell into marketing ops. But for you, you mentioned it was a pretty strategic move. So uh, I'd love to hear how you ended up in this space.
1: Sure. So I started my career actually in sales operations. And uh, at the time, it was like fresh out of college. um, I had had the good fortune of somebody hiring me that I knew. And I was doing data hygiene and I found it extremely dull. So when it it came time for me to kind of like find that full-time job, I decided I wanted something very people-facing and I went into event marketing. And I was one of the first hires at a startup, and it was basically my manager and me, and that was the marketing team. And we did several events per year. It was quite a bit of fun. It was also a bunch of responsibility to have like for your first job. So I was mm-hmm. figuring it out as I went and I was there for just short of two years. And during that time, I kind of learned a lot about myself and I, I kind of learned that the part of my job that I really loved was actually the backside of it. Like not necessarily being at these events, setting up the booth and interacting with customers, but more of looking at the data. Okay. And at this time I had kind of like, um, Met my now husband, and we were both kind of in these careers, which really were demanding in terms of the amount of travel you have to do. And um, I shifted gears a bit. I decided that um, I needed to get a career that was more um, back and focused. And I also realized, um, as I think many people do when they start their careers, on the job training is really not a thing anymore. And mm-hmm. you have to kind of get your own skills. So I went back to school. And um, when I was making that decision to go back to school with my job at a startup, I just didn't think I could do it all. You know, I didn't think I could be in school and run these events. So I switched careers. I went into contracting um, for a larger organization. And um, this time I took on more of a generalist role. So I was doing the events still because that's, you know, my core skill set. I was doing some social media. And I was also doing um, some operations work. And that was very fortunate for me because um, when you go back to school, like you you have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's a full-time program. So for me, I went back part-time and I started to immediately be able to apply what I was learning to my job. And I got converted to full-time. And again, for nearly three years, I did a lot of events and it kind of solidified my understanding that I did not enjoy the travel aspect. I didn't see how I could have a good work-life balance if I was traveling that much. And some people thrive. And I'm not trying to say, you know, mops is like a a very like chill job. It can be very demanding, can be Mm -hmm. very long hours depending on where you work. But you can also do a lot of your work from the comfort of a desk and not being on a plane all the time. So in that sense, when it came time for me to make a switch from the job I was at, I very strategically looked only at operations roles at that time, you know, my path had been very, like, I could do a variety of things. I could do demand gen, I could do social media, I could do events. Um, And I limited myself in looking for my roles to go into ops. So it wasn't one of those situations where, you know, your manager sees that you're really good at something. And it's like, Oh, why don't you do, you know, marketing automation, I really push for that shift in my career.
0: Yeah, it's really nice that you, you know, you kind of started out pretty specialist with events and then you went more general with a, a broad scope of different demand gen initiatives and got to get a taste of that operations. And you saw that um, you really liked that piece of it and then were really focused in that, in that space. Um, so you mentioned you went back to school. What did you major in when you were back in school and how would you guide someone who's like, okay, I want to make a change, maybe a different role or a different career. Um, And there are those opportunities from going back to school, uh, learning on the job or getting a certification. So like, how would you weigh those options and what really pushed you more to the going back to school route?
1: Yeah. So I think when it comes to a career shift, you have to get really honest with yourself and figure out what kind of person are you and what kind of resources do you have, right? So for me, the decision was a little easier because um, I was living with my parents and that's something that they fully supported me going back to school and them kind of paying for my living expenses. And I also had really supportive managers at my new role. You know, They were very supportive in me taking Tuesdays off to take my classes. Like I would take off early and I had a super long commute. So it was very generous. So I can make that decision fairly easily. Right. And I also kind of understood the types of things I was interested in learning at the time um, were like SQL and Python and things I didn't really think I could self-teach. Right. You don't necessarily Mm -hmm. need those skills in marketing operations, but I wanted to set myself up for a really in-depth understanding of data, because I kind of was trying to figure out where is the industry going to go? Where's my career going to go? And although I ultimately didn't go into the data side, those were the skills I wanted to get. And I tried, you know, before I made the decision to go to school, I tried to learn Python on my own. I tried to learn Java and SQL on my own and I would do it, but I didn't have that kind of like discipline some people have where they're like, I'm going to do this for four hours a week. I really needed the structure of school and classes. And I did have right. you know, gone and gotten some project management certifications and things like that. And I think certain things are easier to self teach or get certifications and other things. I think it's better to have that in-depth background. Like when you were in a program, like the one I took with business analytics, another thing I evaluated is my program allowed me to intern. They actually placed you with a company and gave you a project. So I worked with Macy's and I designed an algorithm that would do like dress matching. And that's something I had to put on my portfolio when I was looking for um, jobs. So kind of like making that, um, decision. So I would say two key things, like who are you as a person? Right. And like, you know, what are the resources you have available to you? And then two, what are the skills you're trying to get? Like, do you really need to go back to school if, you know, your interest is just slightly different than the job that you're already in, in which case maybe you can get those skills on the job. But for me, that was not the case.
0: Yeah. It's definitely about like, how do you learn? And like, how are you going to hold yourself accountable to that? I know there's times where like, I've completed certifications or like want to do the certifications. But if there's not a tight schedule, or if you don't have to show up live at a certain time, you're like, oh, I can get to that later. But I can definitely relate to, um, you know, meeting with other people and other students and your teachers and having those conversations as well as you're trying out different um tactics or different things that you're learning as well definitely um so you mentioned that your husband also made the decision to uh, take a role where he could be home more often as well too um and you had mentioned to me one of our calls that he went into a sales operations role correct
1: Yes. Yeah, so when me and my husband met, we were both kind of like, you know, go getters. He was living in an apartment with two other guys in SF, and I was living with my parents. So we were, you know, we were trying to make ends meet and do the best we could. And we had a lot of energy to burn. And as we both got older, um, We had less energy to burn. We both realized that, you know, we didn't really have that it factor. Like he wasn't a hunter by nature in sales Mm -hmm. and he had a 10 year long career in sales. So his journey is a bit different. You know, he really tried to have a career in this field where he felt like there was um, a gap in the skills and uh, personality for the job, which I'm not saying there's not soft-spoken salespeople or people that aren't as aggressive, but for him, he repeatedly found himself in these situations where he was going against um, his personality to succeed. And so I had completed this program and made a career switch successfully and, um, I kind of talked him into going back to school as well. I was like, you know, like you've kind of labeled yourself the sales professional and people aren't seeing this side of you. Like he had opportunities where he'd been in Salesforce and built dashboards, but it really wasn't enough to warrant a career switch. So I find that when people see, Hey, this is a person that's going back to school. They're actually getting the on the job training outside of this. So I won't have to train them. Like, let me give them a chance. And it took a long time, you know, for, um, as it was, there were periods of like very scary financial straits where um, he didn't have a job and we kind of supported each other but eventually he found a job in sales enablement which is what he does today and I think it really helped him as well to make those grad school connections like you talked about make those relationships with other peers and students and kind of build that network which is another reason to you know uh, I'm not pushing like go to grad school. It's not for everyone, but I do think there is some value there. And if you're not in the industry you want to be in, to make those connections with the professors and the people that are in your program with you.
0: Yeah. And there's such a benefit to like if um, going back to like university or that type of program isn't the path for you, there are online courses where you can go with uh, um, like a group of people that you can learn with and go through like a semester or a quarter with a group of people. Or if you are doing those certifications on your own, making sure that you're joining user groups and uh, working with those communities. Because yeah, I think that's the biggest thing of like learning in a vacuum. Like, yeah, you can kind of apply and copy and paste, but there's so many different ways to approach things. Um, And so I assume that through both of you going through these experiences of learning and like now both being in like a marketing enablement, uh, operations role and a sales role, do you compare notes at home and learn from each other? Do you try to keep uh, work and life separate?
1: Yeah, so I, I really think like work-life balance is a think of the past sometimes, yeah. you know, it's like um also with COVID, you know, he's like in a co-working space with me. Our home is like a shared office space. Yeah. So I would say we definitely, you know, talk by the water cooler and there's a lot of things he helps me with. Like he for his role is a PowerPoint expert. Like he creates presentations for the sales teams. And so I often will be like, Hey, can you check if like, um, this is aligned properly, or can you tell me how I put like a graphic in this way, in this PowerPoint? And, um, I think I'm more of like, you know, in terms of like interviewing and navigating, I've had a lot of, um, opportunity to like interview and switch careers more often yeah. than one. So I will give him like those type of tips, but I will say like, you know, when it's dinner time or it's date night, we try to like leave that talk. Um, at the desk, it is really hard though when you're in the same space. And that's something I wanted in a relationship. I wanted somebody who could kind of discuss these things with me. So we're trying to balance, but yeah, we definitely talk about work a lot.
0: Yeah. But that's pretty exciting that like you have this partnership where you can elevate and support each other in your careers and kind of go towards this it's cheesy phrase, but you know, power couple on the enablement side of things. And I think it's interesting that you both like dipped your toe either in sales or in marketing and knew that you like that space, but you didn't want to necessarily be Right in like the forefront of it, like there is room for the support roles and enabling those in that area. And I think that's one of the really cool things about operations is that you really facilitate and you enable sales or marketing or the various revenue teams.
1: Yeah, and I would say like for both of us, those journeys have helped us. I think he's able to relate more to the sales teams he supports because he understands those business challenges. He's been in their position, right? And similarly for me, when I'm supporting a field marketing team or demand gen team, I truly do understand how complicated it can be, or how frustrating it can be, frankly, to deal with mops with you know um, certain things. And uh, I think I actually encourage that if you have the opportunity in your career to see things the other way, it does help. Now being in the marketing ops side, I can before when I was in demand gen, like I used to get so frustrated with a two-week SLA and now being in that position where I'm the person enforcing an SLA, I I kind of get to see both sides. And I think that I personally think it's helped me um, be a lot more empathetic in my role.
0: Yeah. um, My background before getting into uh, the tech marketing space was agency. And I loved that because I worked with various teams of experts and it really helps me understand the different ways that different producers work or whatnot. And like when clients would ask for things or I would suggest things for clients, like being able to manage the phrases like this should be a quick ask or this should be easier. Or, Why can't you do this right away? And having an understanding of like, Maybe it's, it's not so easy. And like, even if it's a small task, there's other things in uh, the lineup that might need to take a little bit more lift or a little more priority.
1: Yeah. I think that quick ask is one of my favorite things. Like every time I get a quick ask, like a little stat to my
0: heart, I'm like, it's not as quick as you think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I love that, like having the experience to empathize and relate with those that you're supporting, um, and taking that to, you know, help everyone understand. Um, so I'm going to jump to some, some of the nitty gritty things of like different projects that you've worked on. Um, And you've mentioned that you've had experience with like some tool implementation or like vetting a tool and um, bringing it from presentation to um, getting the team to use it or getting buy in. And so I would love to know your perspective on like how do you make a business case for a new tool?
1: Sure. So I will say a lot of my learnings have come from doing things the wrong way or not entirely the right way. And the other thing I'll say before my discussion is like, I I think we get a little bogged down by being like, it was really successful. It was really unsuccessful. I think most implementations are somewhere in the middle where they're like somewhat successful and somewhat not successful. And um, I I try to look at like my experience in that context. So with that said, um, I can tell you a few things not to do. So when it comes to business implementation, I think one of the biggest failures in my career is when I bought Marketo and I didn't consult um, corporate marketing about it. So I managed to convince my entire team. And then I kind of went and told corporate mops that we bought this tool and we needed their support to integrate it. And um, that taught me a lot. So I, I would say the first thing that you don't want to do is don't work in a silo, right? Right. Identify who your stakeholders are, and make sure that you're capturing the requirements of your specific business, as well as the broader business. So it depends, like if you're in a small business, it might be a little bit, I don't want to say easier to make the business case, but I think you, you may not have to worry about the broader team so much. But if you're in a large organization, you have to really think before you purchase a technology mm-hmm. and you have to make sure you're not just buying something that's gonna solve for your business. You need to get a lot more people onboarded, right? Right. But for us, we uh at my past role when I bought Marketo, we were not getting the support we needed. We weren't getting emails, we weren't getting nurtures, we weren't getting like, you know, lead scoring the system that we had in place was not scoring leads at a marketing lead level. It was only once they went into Salesforce and we were in like a very specific BU that ran businesses a certain way. So after you know, three years of being told, no, 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 I was like, gosh, like I just need to buy something and do it myself. Right. What I didn't think about was, okay, so if I buy this tool, I still have to get it integrated into the corporate sales force mm-hmm. and um, I'm going to need help to do that, right? So I, I would say in a big business, just make sure you're working really closely with your business partners, both in your org and outside your org. Um, A more successful tool implementation uh, that I've had within my org um, is with a tool called um, Splash. And even that, there were some, you know, some challenges and we don't use Splash today because of those challenges. So essentially with that tool, um, the good thing about it is there was already um, quite a few internal champions that wanted to implement this tool. And um, I've used the tool in the past. And I also had the support of, you know, my management team to make it happen. So I had some internal buy-ins. So the business case um, was not terribly difficult to make for a tool like this. That said, again, we didn't fully scope it out in Asking, you know, our security teams to look at certain mm. things. So that's another thing. So after you've gotten that buy-in and you've made a case for the tool, and you maybe have some internal champions, you want to make sure that you've really done a thorough evaluation of what are the things that can shut it down. So we had this tool that we implemented. was super successful. People used it, Um, and I, you know, there was definitely hiccups. There were some times when branding was like, mm, we didn't look at this. So and again, not hundred percent successful. Right. But then there was a big security issue. And I was like, gosh, like now years later, after that tool has gone away, I'm like, maybe if we brought security in from the beginning, we would not have down this tool and um, waste so many people's time. The third one I want to talk about, I think this is the closest to us having a pure success or um, something that was implemented properly. And there's quite a few different things that happen. Firstly, um, I would say that I wasn't the one making the business case for this tool. But one thing I noticed is we had somebody who was from that um, agency contractor background who would kind of seen this tool work in many different places and sold us on it. And um, our director was very trusting and supportive of us kind of being able to launch this. Um, and uh, NAC is like an email self-service tool. And um, it basically allows you to have like no coding and just like build your emails and then sync them into Marketo. So it was a way for us to give self-service to our consumers. So that was kind of the business case. And again, this was like a win-win for many teams.
0: Yeah, no code self-service is great. (laughs) Right, exactly. So um,
1: we launched and um, we we kind of like went through the right process this time. Mm -hmm. Like we made sure we had done a thorough evaluation and we'd gotten, you know, the people that needed to be involved in implementation on board. We brought branding um, on board so that they could really, like, see what's being built. And we started small. We launched it only um, in one team, one region at a time. And now over time, I think it's been um, very successful for us in APJ and EMEA, but we haven't gotten as much traction in Amer. So that's kind of where, again, not 100% successful, but a high rate of success. And so now we're kind of back at the drawing board and figuring out, okay, so what should we do for our Amer team so that they are also able to experience self-service in the way that they want to? Um, So I would say making a business case. Um, I don't think it should be a business case made from Moth. It's almost like you're solving a problem and that's right. your business case.
0: Yeah. This is the problem we're trying to solve and this is who it impacts. And this is what happens if we don't move forward and you, and you kind of address this, um, when you mentioned implementing with different teams, cause I've been there where we've had, um, a consultant or an agency recommended tool because they saw we were having a problem with a certain team and, found a solution that we thought would solve all our problems. And sometimes I think one of the things to remember too is like a tool can be helpful, but if you don't have like the strategy or the mindset around it, like the tool isn't going to work if people aren't doing the thinking along with that and kind of went on a tangent there. But my question for you is how do you have any suggestions around getting the right amount of people involved versus getting too many people involved because I know that's where I've struggled in tech implementation in the past is that you want to think of like okay we want an end user we want leadership we need security and we need the people who are going to integrate with other tools um so do you have any uh suggestions from from that
1: yeah, I, I do. So I think buy in from the top is always critical, right? So once you have that buy in from the top and you've Um, kind of got that leadership, you should work with your leaders and each team's leaders to have them nominate someone. Because oftentimes we want the leaders in the room and we want them making the decision-making, but they don't have time. They don't have time to sit with you in all these tool meetings and uh, make decisions, although it highly impacts them. So get them to recommend somebody that they trust. And I would say do limit it. Don't have like three people from each team, because I've been in that situation when I wasn't running the implementation, but I was seeing it being run. I would just see it take so long because So many people are there with so many opinions. So I would say identify the critical teams and then ask the leaders of those teams who can be your point person and work with them. And I wouldn't say it works 100% of the time, but it's definitely going to narrow down your list. And then the teams at least feel like, oh, you know, we were consulted. We weren't told.
0: Yeah. Um, And so you mentioned a lot like getting that leadership buy-in, but sometimes leadership gets shiny object syndrome as well. So have you had any experience around like leadership wants a certain tool, but it might not necessarily be the best problem solver for the team or for the organization and how you would go about having that conversation with leadership?
1: So I would say that's something I've observed my managers do. I'm not Mm -hmm. at a point in my career where I'm having those direct conversations, but um, as, you know, as Databricks grows and we bring in new leaders, one thing I'm really learning is how do you kind of steer the conversation? So you're talking about the problem you're trying to solve as opposed to the tool you're trying to buy. And um, I've definitely observed, you know, the people that I find that have led me have been effective in this when they really position it as um, a problem solving and trying to make it better for everyone, as opposed to for, you know, one person, because within businesses, even if you don't have views, and you're at a small, small company, it might not solve for all the regions as I'm learning, right? Right. So I think if you can position it, in that way, like I'm solving a problem for you because like, why do they want that shiny tool, right? They right. want it to do something. So if you can start talking about that, what is it you want it to do? It kind of helps you pull back from that shiny tool.
0: Yeah, so, not the thing, but but the how. And I, I love that you're in a scenario where like you are seeing what your managers are doing. And so like there are those scenarios where like you learn through making mistakes and there's scenarios where you learn From others and you're able to implement that when maybe you own a project or you're working with leadership.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, So that brings me to uh, you mentioning like having your managers or like learning from your team is uh, you mentioned to me, there's a project that you worked on where you integrated three teams into one and helping get them all um, into one system and utilizing Asana to do that. And so, um, can you tell me a bit about your process and getting all these teams in one process, and how you uh, utilize Asana for that?
1: Sure. So, um, I, you know intake and ticketing is something I'm very passionate about mm-hmm. um and again I think this comes from a background of having been in large companies where things would take a really long time to happen and I would be like the one person supporting a BU who had to like submit three different tickets to three different teams to get things done then just track and manage and it's like every program was such a struggle to get out the door yeah. so I think like if you if you can solve these kind of problems for your stakeholders. It makes such a difference to the business and it's such a difference to your stakeholders. Um, But there's also an aspect of when you're trying to create a joint process amongst many teams, it's, you're obviously going to make your stakeholders happy, right? They're like, yes, less tickets, but also you have to have a relationship with your other support teams. And this comes back to not just solving for your team. Like it's a lot easier for an operations team if they get one ticket just for their specific piece. Mm -hmm. But if you want to solve a problem holistically, I would say like you have to spend some time understanding the problems your stakeholders are having. And we, we did this. This ticketing system, which was like three separate tickets for a long time. And um, after seeing that pain point, I would say like uh, leadership and, you know, managers from different teams started complaining that, you know, we weren't being good partners because everything was taking so long. And how are we ever going to scale? And it wasn't just me and my team getting this feedback. It was all the operations team right. getting this feedback. Right. And so I kind of thought about like, it from the internal customer perspective, like what would be my ideal case scenario? And for me, it was like, what if I submitted one ticket and that could like trigger off a complete process of execution. So there's like a full programs stream, right? You have your uh, content created and then you r- submit it to, Um, the operations teams, and that includes, you know, web, brand, and um, marketing ops. And at the end, you get like this lovely product, right? And so when I talked to um, my team, we had gone through a process where we had shifted from having a single form for every type of campaign, ebook, webinar, Um, et cetera, to having separate forms um, for each type of product. And um, that had been pretty successful. Like people had been happy that they could submit just what they needed to get that done. So we decided that if we wanted to, again, have this single flow process, we had to understand from our brand and web teams, what do they need? Right. What do they need to execute on an ebook, and how is that different from a webinar? And so we spent a lot of time talking to the different teams and um, making sure that we captured all of those requirements. Then we mapped it out and we also talked about tools a lot. Right. We weren't all working in the same tool. Some people were working in Jira. Other people were using um, a variety of tools like our branding team uses Figma um but I, uh, the majority of the teams were using asana and the stakeholders that we support were using asana so that's kind of how we solidified right. And we also um, did a little bit of work to integrate Jira and Asana. So, I think to make a process like this work, you do have to have some like strong tech talent or an IT team that's very supportive and has the budget and time to support you. So, uh, I had a member on my team who's like a superstar. Um, his name is Adrian, and he was able to build this custom form that would like trigger off tickets to individual Asana boards. The way Asana works is like there's multiple projects, and he would have a form that would kind of trigger it on all of the different teams um, projects so having that really helped and then having um, somebody who was able to support us from the bsc um, that's our business systems engineering team and it teams kind of build the integration from asana to jira helped us all consolidate in one tool so once we created this form, captured the requirements and had this integration we again we started small right so we only did yeah. it for one specific program type i can't remember what that was it was either ebook or webinar and then we kind of created some internal you know champions of this process and they were like this is great i didn't have to manage three different tickets like they got it done in this much time and we also really documented like. Okay, so what do you have to do as somebody who's submitting and what do you have to do as somebody who's executing? So we really got crisp on our documentation. I created a video on how to submit, which like it still goes out to new hires today where they come into the org. They watch a video on how this process works and what they do. And so when you join our marketing team, you kind of see this process um, happen and you're trained on how to do it. So there's a lot of component parts, but essentially it's like, one, figure out, you know, what's the problem? to figure out you know what are what what how do you solve it right and what are the requirements for each team and then make sure you have buy in and alignment from the people you need to have it right so we had to make sure IT had time we had to make sure we had a technical person on our team and we had to make sure that all three of our teams were comfortable going through this new process. And there was some resistance, right? Like it's much harder to do it this way. But after we kind of had that first success with one of our program types, it was fairly simple then to broaden it. And we continue to broaden and refine. And I will say, you know, this process has worked great so far, but like it only got us from point A to B. Now we have to get to point C. So we're reevaluating the process as well, which I think is something that as operations teams, it's important to be open to change. And as you scale your business, you have to scale your ops. You can't get stuck in doing things a certain way. So I would say we've been very lucky that this process has worked so far and I'm very open to seeing, you know, how do we have to refine it to continue to support the business as it grows.
0: Yeah. And it's nice to have those guardrails to work from as well. And it's so nice. I'm like going back into so many scenarios in my head at like an agency time and even like internal marketing departments where there was like a discovery and then you have to go tell all the different teams and then like the designer and this person had to have a meeting. And then this person had to have a meeting to make all these different things work within time or in scenarios where there was a project that had to have multiple teams involved and everybody's sprints were different. So something that could have taken two weeks probably took three months because you couldn't fit it in their sprint. And so hearing this like waterfall effect of like you do your discovery and mention your needs in this form that then activates all these different teams like this is like that's so nice. I could like live my, the rest of my day today so happy just like the idea of this nice operational uh effective workflow. <laughs>
1: And you know, I, I, while you're saying that, I will say another thing that's very useful is like lots of people have called me up and asked me, Hey, how did you do this at your old company? I've had people from the agency that we used to have call me because they've shifted jobs and they want to replicate what we're doing. And I've done that, you know, when I was implementing, um, webinar technology at my first, um, startup job, uh, one really great piece of advice that my manager at the time gave me is read and like try to get, um, advice online, but also like, don't spend all this time trying. To figure out how to do it, if there is like a best practice or a way that people have already done it, call them up, ask them what they went with. Why did they go there? And I did that. I was implementing um, a webinar technology and I called up, I can't remember who, but it was somebody who was using Bright Talk. And my goal was to get to hu- a thousand registrations per webinar. And I asked this person like how did you do it and they're like oh you know if you use bright talk they actually have a promotion thing so you don't really have to um do all the promotion yourself and like i learned a lot from that conversation and how they evaluated so i would say like if you're implementing a new tool or a new process don't try to reinvent the wheel all the time yeah. like, sometimes it works and you should be specific to the needs of your business but also like talk to as many people as you can and read as much as you can before going down the route of coming up with a solution from scratch.
0: Yes, I am so thankful for all the different marketers and uh, operational leaders and workers who like have gone through something and share their experiences either through like here or inside conversations because like you could spend all day trying to figure something out and all it takes is one message of like, Oh, I know someone who did this and I actually I think I mentioned to you a friend of mine who's in operations. I saw she posted in a community about a form situation. I was like, I, I as like I just had a conversation in one of these prep calls of someone who did it. I was like, I bet she or someone on your team her team could walk you through it if you're interested. And so, it's so exciting to have um, connections and people who openly share how, how they've done it and they've been there. Um, I do want to go back on one of the things you mentioned with the form and like having someone like help build it. So was a majority of this like custom built to do the integrations? Is there anything like if someone's like, okay, I have Asana, I have Jira, I have, fo- I like, I need a form. I want to build this on my own. Like how much do you think you can use just those tools and like what they have available versus doing some like custom coding or custom building?
1: Yeah. So not everyone's going to have a superstar on their team. That's like very yeah. technical and can code, right? And then typically it's not a talent that I've seen found in all ops teams. It's so mm-hmm. it depends, right? There are tools that can do the integration. Like for example, Vercado does an integration between Asana and Jira. And um, there's also other types of fixes you can do. You know, there, you, you can do manual things, which I've had to do in the past. So do, mm-hmm. do what you can and understand. Like if you have a 10 person team, manual is probably fine, right? As you get right. bigger, it's going to become a bigger problem. And then maybe ask for some budget, ask for some IT support, but really get crisp before you start making these big investments, right? Um, I would say if we didn't have a superstar on our team, I would probably have had to push a lot harder with my IT and BSE teams. And I would have to have, leveraged you know the leadership teams in demand gen field marketing and my own team to kind of get us more it support to do those integrations so I don't think you have to build everything in-house it's great if you have the talent and support to do so but you solve a lot of these things through third-party tools if you have somebody supporting you or you yourself can learn it depends really like you know where is your skill set how much time do you have and so on
0: yeah, I know Workato is a great tool. We actually had David over there on the the uh, series a few a few weeks ago, and um also like I'm newly learning how to use Zapier and like seeing all the different uh, things to do there is very exciting from integrating different workflows and and tools. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: Um, another thing that is big and I are. I don't know if it's a big thing for all of marketing operations roles, but one thing that you've had experience with in your role is budget management. And so I'd love to hear your experience around um, how budget management has been a part of marketing operations for you and how um, you helped support an initiative around that.
1: Sure. So um, one thing I experienced early on um, when I joined my current role is we were trying to get really efficient with how we scaled and we needed to do it um, without like, you know, doubling our costs, right? Just because we wanted to be efficient. Um, We're fortunate that, you know, we've been I've never been like in a cost cutting situation here, but there has been a lot of um, opportunity to find efficiencies. And so when I first started, we were using an agency approach and that got expensive for us pretty quickly as we started to have more custom requests and more back and forth. And what we were trying to do at that time is like, really dig into like, why are our costs getting so high? And are we really getting the value that we need to get out of the costs that we're spending? Um, Because the programs also have to drive pipeline, right? And if we're not seeing that grow at the same rate, your expenses are, something might need to be investigated. And in that process, I found a lot of inefficiencies. And I noticed that there was a lot of room for improvement in how we were as a company functioning and how the agency was working with us, right? So the first thing I looked at was like um, excessive meetings. And in the beginning, this type of stuff is easy, right? There's a lot of like, um, I want to say like a lot of fat that you can shave off because we're noticing, okay, why why are there like three meetings a day? Or why is there, why is this a meeting instead of an email type of thing, right? And then it, kind of got into the nitty gritty where I'm seeing that, okay, you know, our stakeholders are repeating the same thing on every single ticket that we receive. And like, why isn't the agency just like memorizing this stuff? Right. And or understanding that they need to repeat it and things like that. Right. And so a lot of this discovery would led us to think, okay, you know, we don't have the type of situation where we are doing like these out of the box programs, which are the same every time we're actually doing a lot of custom work. And when you're doing a lot of custom work, it can be expensive with an agency, right? Because, um, I, have learned that, uh, and from most of my team, that an agency typically works best when you have predictable processes and predictable templates that they can replicate over and over again. Mm-hmm. If you're not running your business that way, if you want to be more personalized, I'm not saying you can't do it with an agency, but at the stage that we were at, we were kind of still figuring things out. So it wasn't really a great fit for us. And, um, I had, a, I had a management change while I was kind of doing this um, exercise of finding efficiencies. And ultimately, my manager decided that it would be better for us to go with a contractor model that was in-house so that we could have and train contractors to do things in a specific way. And we could control the number of hours that they spent on tasks and overall worked in a week, right? So that helped us kind of get efficient in how we're doing things. That to say, I learned a lot from hiring contractors. And um, what I really learned is that you discover what is and is not working in your system. So I learned that we lack documentation around Mm -hmm. what templates to use when, what forms to use when. And I would have contractors that onboard and be really confused, like, okay, like, when do I use this um, type of ebook template versus this type of ebook template? And um, that's something, as if, if you're with the company a long time, you just kind of like memorize these things. Right. You don't like, you're, you're not taking the time to document. So um, I, I got a lot of experience in terms of like understanding how can I grow this contracting team by making sure my training is crisp and clear. And you have to continue to grow your training and grow your documentation as the business expands and as your events and, um, webinars and eBooks start to get more custom because, um, I think initially I had thought we could just like do the training one time and sift it out, but things change quickly. And so I've learned a lot about, you know, being flexible with the way that we do the training and making it simple to, um, shift focus and things that I do that have kind of worked, um, is kind of like record things and have my builders that have been with the company a long time record when they're doing something new so that I don't have to go back and create the training. But sorry, going back to the budget part. um, Yeah, I would say that it's really like, taught me how to be more efficient with a budget by looking at, you know, how are you spending and what are critical things and what are non-critical things to be spending on, like meetings and having people be confused. Like that's a real, really big way to waste money yeah. if you're not being careful about um, how your contractors and how your agency is spending their time. And they really shouldn't be spending time being confused or doing too much back and forth on your tickets.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of the way you solve for this is around efficiency and like in your experience, were you aware of the budget, or were you just in your mind because you knew of timelines and how long things took and how many resources you just inherently knew that costed a lot? Or like, were you given a budget to bring down, or or how did you manage Mm -hmm. that? Because I'm trying to get to like some marketing operations people like when they are maybe presenting a tool like we talked about earlier, some of that that you can present in your case is around budget. But um yeah, were how close were you to the numbers?
1: Yeah, I would say when I initially started, it was pretty close. Like I wasn't given like a hard number, but I was told over this period of time we have to increase efficiency and decrease cost by this percentage quarter over quarter. And mm-hmm. at that time, I was like really tightly monitoring that. Um, because we were trying to figure out like we we had a problem right and we were trying to solve that problem Um, then with the contractors I would that we currently have I wouldn't say it's necessarily we're not tracking like hours minutes days but we want to make sure that we are you know maintaining like a good amount of work it's good for you and it's good for the contractors that they are able to get the hours that they're contracted with you to get so it's a lot more around time management and making sure that my most experienced builders are spending time on the most complex projects and not on things like, you know, list uploads and things like that. So it's more now I would say about time management than budget management. But initially, Mm -hmm. yes, when you're in a phase where you're trying to find efficiencies, you have to be very close to the budget. And I would ask my agency for reports on how long everything would take. And I was like really in the numbers at that time.
0: Yeah. And I think too, like, you had mentioned in conversation before that, like, even though you might not like directly touch revenue, everything that like an operations person does impact revenue. And I think there are times where people are so, I don't to say so revenue focused, but you think you want to do the tactics directly tied to that. But efficiency can be such a big thing and where having an operational role um, can be so important to make sure that you ultimately do reach those revenue goals.
1: Yes, definitely, and you know it comes down to like I've gone in and done the work um, when I first hired the contractors to define like what program types take the longest amount of time, and I even did things like, you know, an alteration request adds one hour to this type of build if you're going to ask for a multi part webinar that's, you know, three different programs that we have to build in one ticket and that's going to take this many hours. Um, and then making sure, you know, you can show, we haven't had to do this, but when you do that kind of mapping, you can actually show people that, you know, this is how much the internal cost was. And we add that to our Salesforce campaigns. We look at the hours, we charge X amount per hour. I've made it flat now, but you could get really nitty gritty with it. And when we track the ROI of our programs, we actually take that internal cost into account when measuring the ROI.
0: Nice, yeah, that's a good little uh note or takeaway I would think if like you're in operations role and you are trying to maybe be a little more st- strategic or show how you're supporting business initiative. That's almost like a template I would take out to utilize and, and copy. Um, you mentioned that you learned a lot of things from your uh, contractors as well, from like the questions they asked or the support they needed. But I would assume that the contractors that you're hiring are very specific in a certain skill set that maybe like you're not super familiar with, or you didn't have a lot of experience. And so, how do you um, manage or like learn from the things that they do? Might have a little more technical or different experience from you.
1: Sure. So I would say um, we, we have a lot of technical talent on our team that does yeah. know how to do everything um, our contractors do, but you know, we have so many different needs as a business that our full times full timers are typically focused on more strategic initiatives or larger projects that are ongoing or not even projects, you know, programs that are ongoing. Whereas our contractors are focused on those projects that have like an end date Mm -hmm. oftentimes. And uh, in terms of skill set i think we have a variety of skill sets right i recently hired somebody who's um, highly technical comes from an engineering background and in terms of what i'm learning from her she's like very good about being like oh you know there's going to be this type of data outage in your uh, in this and the set that your marketo instance is um, hosted have you thought about these things and mm-hmm. that's very useful um, we have other people that are really program focused and they've kind of seen programs across multiple organizations so they can say hey you know i'm noticing that this template type really isn't working for us anymore because we used to do things this way and now we're doing things this way and that's an efficiency you only get if you have contractors that Day with you, and I see this from contractors that have been with us for over a year, right? They're really able to help me understand what is and isn't working from the template side because I'm not in it the way they are day to day. Um, Other skill sets we look for is now I'm starting to look for people that can help more on the program management side or the visualization and reporting side of things. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would say we try, we try to hire contractors that are mostly marketo focused has been our yeah. focus, but we also try to hire more for, I, I would say like, um, culture ads you want to have people that are you know excited to do programs but also are fun to work with every day like I don't I've been a contractor before and I think the way that it works best is if you really feel like they're part of your team and so I try to hire people that I feel like they don't necessarily have to have like a s- amazing like skill set that is so unique and so different from our other contractors but um, I want to hire people that are you know like excited about the business excited about databricks excited about um working on a team and um ideally like at least when i was a contractor i wanted to be converted so i like to see if somebody like does want that if we can make that happen for them so yeah i would say skills are definitely important but um something that was told to me when i was early career is like hire for um like culture and culture add and train for skills. Um, And I think that that's true of many roles, right? So there's a lot of skilled contractors out there, Um, but I think the true gem is if you can find somebody that's like fun to work with.
0: Yeah. yeah. and has it hunger. And I want to like, you've said it twice already. And I want to like get in to this too. I love the focus and what you said about like culture ad versus culture fit. I think that is so important that you think of it as an ad and not just bringing in people who think exactly the same as you, because how you're saying you're going to learn different perspectives, you're going to learn different techniques. And this is important with full-time people on your team contractors agencies freelancers like you want to be able to align and understand with someone but it's really about the ad part ad is the the key word there
1: yeah definitely I think culture if it can be overrated and it can have some negative connotations mm-hmm. but um I think ad is better like you don't want to hire all people that are the same that's so boring I definitely want to have people with different perspectives and people that are not afraid to tell me if I'm doing something incorrectly
0: yeah yeah um I want to make a a call for any questions, if anyone has any in the chat, to make sure we have about uh, 10 minutes left. And so before we wrap up, kind of going back to the beginning of something that we mentioned, is that um, getting into your role and, like, starting into MAPS, there are some scenarios where you can be, like, super technically focused which uh, maybe in like a contractor role, that's what you're doing. Or sometimes you're very general or you might start in demand gen and get a little bit of insight into operational. So what is your suggestion for someone who is maybe interested in getting into marketing operations? Like what are the pros and cons of like being a generalist versus being um, like super technical or super focused?
1: Yeah, so I would say there's a couple of different things that I've noticed. Um, I think with being a generalist, um, you you may actually have more opportunities to take different types of roles. Like when you look for a job, it's like the world is your oysters. Um, there's not a ton of people that have had in-depth experience in a variety of things in marketing. So if like you wanna work for a startup where you're kind of like that first hire and you were doing a little bit of everything, I think it's great to be a generalist because you have those opportunities and people will reach out to you for those kind of roles. Um, In terms of like trajectory, right? Like if you're really looking to grow your career and I think this sometimes applies to people who are thinking about things like family planning, you know, do you wanna be at a certain stage in your career and have a certain level of like balance and financial security? I think if you specialize early, it can sometimes be easier to move up. This is advice that's been given to me and I do find it to some degree true, right? Like you can hit a more senior level more quickly if you specialize um, early on. And um, I I think that's a major, pro con in terms of job security, I will say there are fewer people that are super technical um, than generalists, right? So if security is important to you um, and you really wanna make sure that you prioritize that, it doesn't hurt to be technical. There's also an aptitude part to it. Like I went back to school wanting to be more technical and so did my husband, right? We thought, okay, let's be like data engineers or data scientists, great security. We can do our jobs from home. And what we found is neither of us really loved coding. I I actually discovered my passion for program management. I was much more interested in like, okay, when are we going to complete this project? What are the deadlines? Who will do what? And understanding the skill sets of the group not something I learned about myself. So be honest with yourself. You don't wanna be in a job that you hate simply for job security or growth. And I think it took me a long time to come to this. Like way back in the day, I actually even tried being a therapist and that wasn't for me either. <laughs> um, but you, you know, figure out um, wh- what makes you happy. You know, you're gonna be doing your job for many, many years unless you get really lucky or you're very wealthy or something like that, right? Um, so try to figure out what's gonna make you the happiest aside from things like trajectory and um, job security. But those are kind of like the pros and cons I see in terms of um, yeah versus not.
0: Yeah, and you, you can't be afraid to try and maybe it's not something you love, but you learn, it does help you point you better in the direction of the things you do like. And it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen that graphic of like, growth where you might go like this and then go all the way down and then go up again, or you can have that like ladder approach. Um, So those are my kind of dance moves to show that since I don't actually have the visual. Um, But yeah, you mentioned going back to school was a path for you to get more technical. And some people do really like that on the job learning or whatnot. But say maybe you're limited from... Um, Being able to do some technical learning internally, or there's just different skill sets, but you would love to stay at like your current company. How could you better work with like your company or your manager or your team to grow in that uh, a more technical or a different skill set?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different ways, right? So I, th- I just want to make sure I'm understanding your question correctly. Yeah. You're talking about like somebody's found themselves in a job where they want to stay with the company and right. in their role, but they're not getting the opportunity to develop the technical skills um, for their next job. Yes, correct. Or um, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of paths. One, do you have a manager that can coach you Is um, a player coach or not, right? Do they have a completely different skill set? And do you want your next job to be your boss's job, in which case they can probably help you? I found myself in both scenarios. I've had player coaches and I've had people that are my boss but are not necessarily in the direction that I want to grow, Right. And um, I I would say you have to get honest about what uh, capacity you have. If you have a job that is like really demanding and you're not going to have time outside of that job to get the skills you need, unfortunately, you you may have to figure out like, is this something you can do at this stage in your career, particularly if you're looking to stay and not like leave right so if you're in a very demanding job your manager isn't able to um coach you for that next level or um there's not opportunities within the scope of your role for you to get those skills and you don't have time at that point i would say you have to figure out if you want to stay in the role or not now if you don't have these there's the path so if you have time or um Um, like a supportive manager, you can figure out different ways to get the skills you need. So I've been fortunate that in situations where I've had a manager that maybe can't be a player coach for me, they've been very supportive of me seeking experience, like informational interviews with people outside the field or going, you know, going back to school or getting a certification or enrolling in a training program. You can also learn from your peers, right? So I would say like shadowing peers that are doing what you wanna do. If you're in a large organization, that can sometimes be easier because there's so many people. um, And there's often programs where you can like Find mentors. I know VMware where I was at had this really great program where you would type in the skills that you wanted and they match you. But even if you don't have that at your work, like um, Laura, you mentioned going to groups, joining groups, going to meetups, you can typically find people that can teach you. And I did a lot of that before I went back to grad school. I actually called up um, a mentor of mine who had in her career progressed and she was pretty high up at a big company. And I asked her, I'm like, Hey, I really want to do what you were doing in five years. What should I do now? And she told Mm -hmm. me, she's like, you should probably learn SQL. And, um, that's kind of what gave me the idea. So talk to a lot of people don't feel like, you know, there's nothing you can do. Like, like I said, I think on the job training is often not something you're going to find. So you have to find different avenues and it doesn't have to be going back to school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of opportunities and learning from others, I know that, uh, Databricks has some opportunities that you wanted to share today.
1: Yeah, so we're looking to grow our marketing operations team. We have quite a few roles open um, in the contracting space. Um, We're also looking for some summer interns. So if you or someone you know is interested in exploring, um, I would say my whole team is really great to work with and it's a fun place to work. There's a lot of opportunities and uh, we're good group of people. So um, yeah, if you're interested, please reach out to me. Um, You can email me vish.gupta at databricks.com or you can ping me on LinkedIn. Um, I'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I mean, if you were here today, you heard that they have got efficient processes. The teams work great together. Um, There's great work with the contractors if that's the route you want to go. So Uh, make sure you reach out. And if you have any questions, I'm sure Vish would be glad to answer. So um, we are reaching the end of our series today. So Vish, thank you so much for joining us. I know I'm going to have so many notes whenever I go back and rewatch this to get this on the site. I'm sure everyone else had a a lot of really good takeaways. So um, thank you everyone for joining. And then thanks again to you, Vish.
1: Thanks so much, Laura. It was great chatting with you.